We will be continuing our trek through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you're new here today, this is what we do. We go uh, verse by verse through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, and we don't get to skip anything. And because we don't get to skip anything, we get to land on very difficult passages, such as one today. And so what I'm going to do today, because it's a lengthy passage, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. And then uh, we're going to pray, and then we'll discuss it. So you should be there by now. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. We're going to read all the way through verse 37. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on that day, I'm sorry, on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Let's pray as we go to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we... We love you, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to both bone and marrow, and it changes those who are ready to listen, to heed your word. So I pray, God, that you would prepare our mind. Fractions, and that you would... Incline our mind to your word and make changes in our hearts, God. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we should remember, 
as if we need reminding that this is God's word. This is not just an ancient text. It's not just a collection of writings, but it is the very word of the living God. It's Jesus' words specifically to men who were with him. And he meant for them to hear it. He meant for them to understand it. He meant for them to heed it. And in God's sovereignty, it's God's word written down by Luke as he's moved along by the Holy Spirit to write it down for us, to hear it and read it and receive it, believe it and obey it. And I say that because I want us to view matters of eschatology, which is what this is. I want us to view matters of eschatology rightly. Eschatology, if you don't know that word, it just means a study of end times. It's the study of the end of all things. And I think if we're honest, it can be very overwhelming. And for probably many of us, if not most, including myself, it's over our heads. Uh, but it is important. It is important. It's worth understanding. And though it's shrouded in mystery, there's a ton of mystery shrouding the study of end times. It may be something we never fully grasp totally in this life. The fact remains that God has revealed it. He's revealed what he's revealed, and so therefore it has purpose. It has meaning, and it should be sought after with understanding as much as we can. And so with that said, this passage has been one of the most challenging passages that I've had to preach on. Uh, in fact, as I've, I've studied it, I've studied other commentaries, I've looked at other sermons, and some take about five to six weeks to go through this one passage. I'm doing it in one. Pray for me. Okay. Uh, R.C. Sproul, in a coming to this text, said, I have no idea what this passage means. So we can all go home now. <laughs> but it's because of this, there's a, there's a ton of controversy. There's a ton of controversy within the church. Many trees have been killed over this passage and writing books in regards to what they believe this passage means. And there's even, there's even disagreement amongst our very own preach team as to some of the nuances of the interpretation of this text. And so my aim today really is to share with you merely what God has shared with me as I've studied this passage and let it be known on the front end that there may be disagreement amongst many great godly men who desire to glorify God. The great godly scholars. And so with that, I want you to join me in, in understanding that I think it's wise. I think it's wise to approach texts like this cautiously, humbly, not drawing any hard lines in the sand, but really to look at what Jesus' main point is anytime he talks about the end times. Or look at what Paul's main point is anytime he talks about the end times. What's the purpose for which Jesus is teaching what he's teaching? What's the purpose? And what I've found is that regardless of, of when or how you believe Jesus is coming back, how you view the end of the age, or how you view the millennium or the rapture, each time Jesus talks about these things, what I figured out is the main point is always, I'm coming back. That's the main point. I am coming back. Therefore, be ready. I'm coming back. Therefore, be ready. 
What we will see today, I believe, is that this message of be ready, it was valid for the men and women listening in the first century, and it's valid for us in the church today. Be ready. Be ready, which has many implications, which I believe everyone in here, God willing, can be one-minded on, of what it means to be ready, which is my main point this morning. If you have your handout, you can follow along. The main point is this. King Jesus is coming back to lay claim to his kingdom, and his citizens must be ready. King Jesus is coming back to lay claim to his kingdom, and his citizens must be ready. The question is, is what does it look like? What does it look like to live now as citizens of a kingdom and therefore as ones who are ready for your king's return? Well, if you remember from previous passages and messages, as we just kind of gone through the book of Luke, Jesus is passionate about the kingdom. He's constantly talking about the kingdom. He's constantly proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God reigning. And the call to repent and bow the knee to the one true king. That's the gospel call. That's the good news. You can serve a greater master, a greater king, and he's come to redeem you and save you. So receive that gift and bow to the king. He's proclaiming that message day in and day out. And so it makes sense that the Pharisees are hearing this all the time. So they're saying, okay, Jesus, uh, when's this going down? When is this going to take place? You hear you talking about the kingdom all the time. When is this going to happen? And so their question is, is probably loaded with a lot of presuppositions. Their questions are loaded with tons of presuppositions. You have to imagine that it's been 300 years since they've heard an utterance from a single prophecy or a single prophet. And so they had expectations. Essentially, they saw from the Old Testament a five-star general messiah. It was going to come with great military might and set up a, a kingdom that was going to make their lives better. It was going to put an end to Rome. It was going to set them up. Right? They were going to be probably just second to the king. And so they were anxious. They were anxious for this. They were all about the glory of Israel. They forgot to think about the glory of God. They forgot to think about the glory of God. And that is what Jesus wants us to remember today as we ponder his return. And it's not about our glory. It's about his. I'm not even sure their question of when is genuine based off just how they've been asking him questions to try to trap him before. But I'm pretty sure that his answer was not what they expected. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is not going to come, keyword, is not going to come with big signs and wonders and military might. In fact, the word for signs here is paraterosos, which is only used one time in all of the Bible right here. So when you see signs in reference to miracles, 
The word is semion. That's typically what you see when you think of miracles, when you see signs related to it. So because of that, Jesus is not saying it won't come without with miracles. Of course it will. He's exercising demons. He's raising the dead. He's doing all kinds of signs. But this word, the parateresos, it means observations. It's not going to come in a way that you can observe it the way you think you're going to observe it. Meaning, you can't look to the political climate of your time and see that it's coming. You can't look to this grandiose military conquest and see that it's coming. It's not grand, it's humble. It's not going to be big, it's going to be small, like a mustard seed. What's ironic, and I love this about Jesus, is that after saying, they will not say look, which the word is idoi, he says, for idoi, <laughs> for behold, tells them to look. Jesus tells them to look. He says, behold, that's what that word means, look closely. So they will not say look, but I'm saying look. I'm saying look and behold, look closely. It's not going to come with emphatic political signs filled with five-star general Jesuses. No, he's saying, look closely. Behold, he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in your midst. And this is where it starts to get a little hairy. This is where the first chapter of these many books written begin. Some interpret uh, this within you phrase as something that was in just a kingdom that's kind of just inside of you. Kind of this over-spiritualized view of just Jesus ruling in your heart, and that's it. And the word, with, the word within you is actually it's a good translation of the Greek word. So you can see why it would be confusing. But another translation is among you, which is another good translation of the Greek word. The kingdom of God is among you or in the midst of you. And so we always let context determine which way we decide if it's within you or among you. And the context here is he's talking to the Pharisees, and he certainly, by no stretch of the imagination, would ever tell the Pharisees, look, within you. The kingdom of God is within you, because we know that they're hypocrites. We know that they're false teachers. We know that they are works righteousness believing people. The kingdom of God, therefore, is not in them. They're not concerned with the rule and reign of God. They want to rule and reign. What is within them is darkness not the kingdom of God. So we should not interpret it that way. Instead, he tells them to look closely for standing right in front of you is the humble, lowly, coming as a poor man. But standing right in front of you is the king of kings. Standing right in front of you is the king of the kingdom. And wherever the king is, and wherever his people are, there, the kingdom is also. The kingdom has come, Jesus says. The kingdom has come. It is here now. In fact, I'm going to camp on that thought for just a minute. Okay? If you remember from Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus said that if by the finger of God, and, and, and Matthew in the same line, he says, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then... What does he say? The kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It sounds like a very present reality. If you turn all the way back to Matthew 13, Jesus tells his disciples that 
to you has been given or granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. So even Jesus says it's mysterious, it's shrouded in mystery. And I'm going to give you this, this kind of peek behind the curtain. And I'm going to tell you some parables. And he starts giving parable after parable after parable. And he starts with the parable of the sower. And he says, the, he says within the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is going to go out. And it's going to go out. The word of God will go out. And it's going to land on hard hearts, thorny hearts, stony hearts, and soft hearts. Some will reject it. Some won't. Then he moves on to the parable of the wheat and the tares. He tells us that in the kingdom, there will be both sons of the kingdom. And then he, he says that the evil one will plant wheat tares in the wheat and so they'll be sons of the evil one and they'll be kind of coexisting side by side all of which will be sorted out in the end at the harvest moves on to the parable of the mustard seed we talked about this a few weeks ago that if you remember the kingdom will begin small seemingly insignificant and it's going to be planted it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow he goes on to the parable of the fishing nets much like the wheat and the tares, he says that this, the kingdom is like a net, and it goes in, and it catches all kinds of fish. It catches good fish, catches bad fish. Good fish, righteous fish, and unrighteous fish, all of which, again, will be sorted out in the end. All of these parables, they, they express a very present reality of the kingdom. A very present reality, meaning the king has revealed himself, and he is gathering his people, and he will continue to do so until he sorts it out at the harvest. He will finish what he came to do. He will claim his throne. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father on his throne, ruling, reigning. And here, while he is there, here the kingdom is, will be proclaimed. Some will hear it, some won't. Some will treasure it, some won't. And within it, for now, will be true disciples and false converts. And so the present reality of the kingdom is kind of a bit of a mixed, mixed bag. It's a bit of a mixed bag, but what we're coming to understand here is that Jesus is building his church, and he will sort out the wheat and the tares in the end. He will sort out in the end, at his harvest, at his return, some unto eternal life, some unto eternal judgment. And yet, and yet, we're going to see from the rest of this passage that it's still future. The kingdom is still future. We're also going to see later in Luke 19 and in, in chapter 21, when we get there, that, they, that Jesus speaks of a kingdom to come. There's a, there's a, there's a greater reality there's a present reality and there's a future reality of the kingdom to come. And so we get from, from this text today the concept, really, of the inauguration of the kingdom and the fulfillment or the consummation of the kingdom as two distinct things. You may have heard it before that the kingdom is already, but not yet. This is where we live. We live within the context of a kingdom that is already not yet. It is, it is inaugurated, but not fully consummated yet. And Jesus is going to give us a peek of what the consummation is going to look like when he comes. Look at verse 22. He begins. He turns his attention to his disciples and says, 
The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. You will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. For just like lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And so Jesus begins to prophesy. But he's also teaching his disciples. He takes this moment to, to instruct them because in light of probably what they just heard, that the kingdom is here now, because they were probably having similar expectations as the Pharisees. So in light of what they just heard, like, what do you, the kingdom's, kingdom's now? King, kingdom is in the midst of us? Jesus says, well, hold on a second. There's something to teach you. He's saying that the days will actually come and I won't be here anymore. I will no longer be with you. And you will long to see me return, but you will not see it. Which they were probably a little confused at this point. But Jesus wants them to, to know that even though the kingdom is here, there's still yet a lot to, that needs to take place. And within that time, he says there's going to be many false messiahs that, that come. There's going to be many false prophets, false messiahs that are claimed to be me, which is exactly what happened at an alarming rate between the years 30 and 70 AD. False prophet, false messiah after false messiah were coming around saying, I'm the, I'm the messiah, I'm the king. It happened at an incredible rate between that time period. And Jesus is saying, don't go after them. It will be tempting to go after them because you're going to suffer. Life is going to be hard. We look to Matthew 10 and Mark 13 where Jesus says, brother will deliver brother up to death. Father, son, and sons will rise up and deliver their parents up to death. It's going to be horrific. There's going to be great suffering because of me. Many will suffer because of me. You will suffer because of me. But these false messiahs, they will, they will offer some sort of promise of relief. Of relief from the suffering. And he's saying, do not seek relief from these false messiahs. Don't seek relief from them for they're, they're false. You won't have to worry about missing if I come back. My return will not be in hiding. My return will not be hard to find. But in the same way that lightning strikes, who here has seen lightning strike from left to right across the sky? It's incredible. I have never seen that and not just been like, whoa. Like it scares me, it makes my heart jump. It's driving down the street, it's pouring down rain, the whole, the whole sky lights up. It's like night went away for half a second. Jesus says, it'll be that visible. It'll be that clear. It'll be that obvious. You're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. It's important to realize that in this passage, Jesus he is pointing less to when he's going to come. Not as much about when. It's more about the nature of his return. More about the nature of it, meaning, like I just said, it'll be obvious. It'll be clear. It'll be sudden. You don't have to worry about whether you have missed the days of the Lord as it will be very, very obvious. But he says, before any of this can take place, remember what I've said already. I have to first suffer. First, I have to suffer. 
This is really the only aspect of when we see in this text of his, of his coming. When will all this take place? After. After Jesus suffers, after he is rejected, he says, by this generation. Jesus begins to highlight his suffering. He says, before he moves on and he continues really with his main point, he highlights first his rejection. Which again, if you're, if you're following along with me in the handout, point one is this. Readiness. What it looks like to be ready. Okay, readiness looks like faithfully waiting on the one who is faithful. Faithfully waiting on the one who is faithful. I believe Jesus seeks to encourage them here and remind them of his faithfulness. I will come, he says. I will come, but before I come, first I must go. And before I go, I must first finish what I came to do. His face is still like a flint towards Jerusalem. Nothing's changing. I first must suffer, he says. I first must suffer, and before you're rejected by family and community, first I must be rejected by my very own people. Listen to me. Listen to me. He says, my my face is like a flint towards Jerusalem. My mission is unchanged. I will complete my mission. Why would this be encouraging to them? Probably not so much now. But when the, when the suffering begins, I, I think they'll look back on this moment when he reminded them of that I'm going to come back, but first I must suffer. I think he wants them to remember him. He wants them to remember him. He says, I think he's saying that when you're suffering, when you are suffering, remember my suffering. When you're struggling and you're waiting and all seems like this thing will never end, or you're wondering, will he ever return? I want you to remember me. I want you to remember the one who is faithful to suffer for your sake, to suffer for your sake, to pay your price, and actually to pay for your entrance into the kingdom of God. I want you to remember that. I am faithful to fulfill the scriptures. It was promised that I would come and I would die, and I would rise again, and I'm fulfilling that promise right now to, to, to suffer so that by my stripes you might be healed. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Remember, I keep my promises. I keep my promises. I, I who fulfill the scriptures in my suffering, I will fulfill them again in my returning. I've come once. I'll come again. I'll come. And when I come, you will know it. It will be clear. You need not look for false saviors, but instead remember my promise and that I am faithful to keep it. And so we too, in this time, over 2,000 years later, we too would do well to remember the gospel always. Always to remember the gospel as a sure foundation of his returning. Lord is not slow to return, but he's patient, giving some of the time to repent. He will come back. We should see, even today, that sin and death, it reigns all over the earth. Wars and takeovers, as we watch another school shooting, another one, 
And then we see the world just kind of act like life goes on as if nothing happened. It's become regular. Another marriage and family dissolving. As we see our own family suffer at the hand of our very own sin, we live in a very broken world. We too must remember that Christ, he entered into that suffering. He entered into that suffering and he suffered on our behalf and he fulfilled the promise. He paid the price and we also must always remember that he is faithful. Therefore, trust. Trust that as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, Christ is coming back. He will make all things right. What are you to do? You're to wait faithfully, not looking to false messiahs. Oh, we have them. Don't think that we don't have them in our day as much as they did in theirs. We have false saviors. We have false saviors, false comforts. We have all our own ways of dealing with the suffering of our time. And we must remember that as we struggle, and as the struggle continues in our country, or in our marriages, or in our community, or in our families, as the world continues to groan, as Romans 8 says, that there is no satisfaction from it. There's no satisfaction from it or salvation or relief outside of King Jesus. Outside of submission to him and faith in all that he has accomplished and a, and a real deep hope in his return. God showed up, didn't he? He came, he conquered, he rose, he ascended, he rules, he sent his spirit. And he promised, I'm coming back, y'all. Don't forget it. Coming back. And when I do, it will be obvious. We'll do it again. So then what are we to do? Are we to just wait? Like, do we just kind of camp out in the mountains and stare up at the sky and just kind of wait? What does it look like to wait faithfully? Well, point two is this. Readiness. Readiness looks like living for the greater kingdom that is both now and sure to come. Readiness looks like living, like living for the greater kingdom that is both now and sure to come. Jesus begins to warn them in verse 26. It says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it, ha- so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, all good things. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. I hear a lot people say, man, I really love good preaching, but I hate preachers that are just focused on fire and brimstone. You might want to tear out this page in your Bible or read it and heed it. God does not warn you out of any selfishness. He warns you out of love. Read it. Heed the warning. Jesus here is taking them back to Genesis. By way of reminder, he wants them to remember Noah. He wants them to remember Lot. 
In each story, if you'll remember, we don't have time to read them today, so go back and, and read them uh, in the first half of Genesis. But in each story, we have really two camps. We have the chosen of God, those who have found favor in God's eyes. And we have those who are unrighteous, living for themselves. And what we see is the few, the small number, will escape judgment but many will not. Few will escape God's wrath, but many will not. And so the difference, the difference outside of God's choosing is, is that Noah heeded the, God's warning. He heard the warning, he got building. He heard the warning, he started gathering animals, gathering wood and supplies. He started building, and for years and years, he trusted the warning. God was still patient. How long did it take him to build this ark? A long time. He kept building and building and building, and this ark was a warning to those watching, and they would not heed it. He was ready for the judgment to come and got to work. Lot, a little slower than Noah, but eventually came around and trusted the warning. He got out of town. The rest of the world in Noah's day and the rest of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's day says here they were merely living as though there was no God. That's essentially what this means. They were living as though there were no God. Notice, Jesus doesn't talk about rampant immorality here. He's not talking about rampant sin. He's actually talking about rampant indifference. Just living your life. Marrying, eating, drinking, having fun, working, building. God who? Mission what? Church what? Rampant indifference. Jesus says, this is how it will be. Jesus says, at his coming, or at verse 30 says, when the Son of Man is revealed, this lightning flash is glorious, but the glorious nature of Christ's return will put that in such pale comparison that when you see it, you will be practically vaporized by it if you're not in him. It's going to be so amazing and so glorious that when you, the Son of Man reveals himself, you won't be able to stand it. Christ revealed himself to John in Revelation, and he fell down like water. What will this be like when he returns? When he reveals himself, it will be glorious and majestic and amazing. But people, when it comes, they won't expect it. They'll just be buying and selling. Just be eating and drinking, living completely indifferent to God and his kingdom. And God, Jesus is saying that in their indifference, they reject the kingdom of God. They reject the rule and reign of God. And so when the king reveals himself in all his glory, in all his might, as fast as lightning strikes, so will it be the devastation of the whole world. It will be the devastation of all who are living for themselves, all who reject the kingdom, all who reject the king, all who are kings unto themselves, and not submitting and bowing the knee to the king of kings. It will be devastated. It will be destroyed. That's what happened when the floods rose and when fire and brimstone came down. It wasn't pretty. But it was glorious. God was glorified as just. And he will do it that again. So what is the opposite of this? What is the opposite of this? Being ready means 
simply recognizing that Jesus is king. He's not, he's not just your counselor. He's not your homeboy. He's not your consultant that you can kind of just take and leave anything that he says. No, he is king, which means he's sovereign. That's sovereign, it means he's ruling, and he answers to no one. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have a board of directors to give him advice. He doesn't need it. He's sovereign, and he rules, and he does as he pleases. There's no checks and balances, no one to give him advice. He does all that he pleases, and that's what it means to be king, and that's who Jesus is. We don't get that in our 21st century. He's not president. He's king. And he's a king who gave himself for us. He's a good king. He's a great king. And he's coming back to lay claim to all his creation, all that he made, which is everything. And when he does, you will be either by way of his atonement in the kingdom, or you will be his enemy. Don't want to be the enemy of the king. You will either be in the ark or in the water. In Christ or in his judgment. So being ready, being ready is seeing Jesus as he is, king, like truly king. Not with indifference, not with indifference towards him, but in loving, submissive faith and obedience that results from it. Loving him because he first loved you. And longing Longing for the future consummation of the kingdom while living for the king now. As what? As a witness. As a witness to his authority. As a witness to his might. As a witness to his glory. As a witness to what he did on the cross. As a witness to his resurrection. As a witness to the fact that he rules now and reigns. And you will either submit to him now or by the rod of iron when he returns. Either way, you will submit. That's what we're witnesses to. Acts 1 gives us an understanding of that. Jesus is risen from the dead. We find our beloved disciples asking Jesus again, is is now now the time you're going to bring the kingdom back to Israel? And he says, wrong question. Wrong question. The question should be, what are you to do until I return? That's what Jesus answers. He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, but you will receive power. This is what you're going to get. You're going to get power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's Jesus' answer to win is don't worry about when. Worry about what you're supposed to do until it happens. Be witnesses. It's interesting. The Greek, that word means martyr. It means be a witness and even be willing to give your life as you witness. Give your life to this. So it means being ready, living faithfully. It all means living missionally as his witnesses, knowing that we have work to do. We have work to do, church, a lot of work to do together, individually, as a part of the body, missionally, to to grow the population of the kingdom. 
to grow the population of the kingdom and trusting that Jesus will come back and he will receive it in his timing. Okay, point three. Point three, readiness. Readiness means forsaking the old to gain the new. Forsaking the old to gain the new. Beginning in verse 31, it says, on that day, he continues. He's not done. The one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. It goes back to Lot again. They're escaping judgment. Lot's wife is on the verge of deliverance. What does she do? She looks back, longing for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that she could not let go of. She turns to a pillar of salt. He gets decimated. Verse 33 says, Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. It's a key verse here. It's a very key verse. Continues, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two grinding in the same place. That one will be taken, one will be left. Continues saying, some will be taken, some will be left. And the and then the apostles or the disciples ask him a question of where, Lord? And he gives a very cryptic answer. Where the, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. And so Jesus is, is going to come, right? We get that. He's going to come with great and immediate and devastating judgment. And I think it will be a worldwide judgment. It will be a worldwide catastrophic judgment. Now we rub up against some more books here. We rub up against some different commentaries. There's some more division amongst the church. There's other passages that use very similar language to this, almost identical language that seems to be talking about a more recent event to come, such as the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so in light of those texts, and when you marry them up with this one, it can be a little bit confusing. Okay, Is he talking about the destruction of the temple? The judgment that is to come and the people of Israel, they should get out while they can. The Christians who are living in Judea at the time, should they just escape and leave while they can because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed? Well, I think that like many prophecies, if you look throughout all the, all the Old Testament, like many prophecies, Jesus is going to give somewhat of a telescoping view of future events. And what that means is that when you look through a telescope, you're looking into the far distance, but you see things along the way. And so I think he's looking at this, he's giving prophecy in light of a telescope rather than a microscope, zeroing in on just one event only. Meaning that, as prophecy often is, there's a, there's a partial fulfillment and then a total fulfillment of the prophecy. There's a partial fulfillment, and Jesus, I believe, has both in view, but with the end in primary view. The end is in primary view, meaning I believe that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it is in view here, but it is a, as a foreshadow of the type, as the type of destruction that's going to come to the whole world in the end. Namely, judgment on those who reject the king. That generation rejected the king. And the judgment came. People continue today to reject the king and then wrath is being stored up for them. 
and their judgment will be on them as well. Like I said, I see this mainly speaking, though, in the greater view of it, in the long-term view, as a worldwide judgment. Is a worldwide judgment where in one place it's evening and in another place it's daytime. That gives me, that gives me insight that it's in different parts of, of, the, of the world. The destruction was going to come so quick and so fast that there would be no time to get out. And what's interesting is that Christians of the first century, they remembered this and they got out. They got out. They escaped to the hills. So this was effective, even for them. And with that, Jesus says, some will be taken and some will be left. This is where some more books come in. Some believe this refers to the rapture. I do not. Taken, taken here, I do not believe refers to the rapture, but taken in, because the context here seems to say that they're taken into judgment. So in fact, the ones taken will be judged and the ones left will be spared. So now the topic has changed. The, the Pharisees asked when. The new audience, the disciples asked where. Meaning, where will they be taken to? Jesus answers with, again, uh, another cryptic saying. But the one I think they would understand. It's, it's actually somewhat of a Jewish proverb. Not from our book of Proverbs. But it's like a Jewish proverb. It's a common saying. Uh, I believe they even picked it up out of Job. It's meaning, meaning that they will be taken into death. Because the word there is eagles. But in context, he's talking about dead bodies. And you know where you see dead bodies? Where vultures are gathering. So they're going to be taken into death. They're going to be taken into judgment. I will separate, Jesus says, the wheat from the tares. I will separate the wheat from the tares. I will gather the wheat and I will burn the tares. And so again, regardless of where you land uh, deciphering specific interpretations of this text, Jesus' point is this. Here's the main point. Here's the warning. If you love the world rather than the king, the world is going to burn and everything in it, including you. Jesus will rid the world of sin and death. And if that still defines you and you have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ, then you will burn with it. That's his point. He says in verse 33, seeking to... Seeking to save your life by clinging to the world will result in going down with the ship. You will lose. And so the call, the warning, the, the thing that we need to heed, that if you are not in Christ today, you need to hear my words. And they're not mine, they're Christ. Jesus is saying, flee. Flee for your life. Get out while you can. Meaning forsake this life that is attached to this world and all that believes. Leave. Get into the ark. Get out of the way. Judgment is coming. And don't look back like what Lot's wife did. Get out. Repent. Turn. Cling to Christ. I urge you today to cling to Christ. Bow to the king. Kiss the son. Lest his wrath come upon you. Forsake the king of self. Step off your imaginary throne and live. Be spared. When he returns, it will be both the best and absolute 
horrific day at the same time. For citizens of the kingdom, joy and glory as we behold our king, we will worship and we will revel in his glory. Sin and death will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. Joy overflowing. It will be glorious day. But for those outside of the kingdom, those who are not in the kingdom, those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ's just wrath and just destruction. Church, church, are we ready for Christ's return? Are we ready? Are we living faithfully to serve the king? Are we living faithfully to the service of the king and to love him and all that he loves? Can we say that we have not looked back this week? Can we say that we won't look back into our old lives next week? Conclude with this. I'll bring us back to Acts 1.9 again. What does it look like to be ready? Jesus ascends, okay? Jesus ascends. They're all just kind of staring at the sky. You can picture it. Jesus ascends. They're all just kind of... And then like two angels show up and they're like, what are you looking at? Like, what are we, what are we looking at? He said he'd come back. He said he'd come back just as he said, just as he left. You got work to do. Go do it. So they did. They left. They went back to Jerusalem. They gathered and they prayed and they waited as Jesus told them to do. And so we too are neither to be looking continuously to the sky, just kind of waiting. Just so that when he returns, we can say, we waited for you. What did you do while you waited? No, we're not just to be waiting, nor are we to be like the rest of the world and just completely indifferent to his coming. But, but with great hope, with great hope and steadfast faith and with immense spirit-filled endurance, we endure through the suffering, we endure through the pain, we endure through the hardships of being citizens of the kingdom because it is hard. And it requires endurance. Jesus said, you will be hated for my name's sake, but those who endure to the end, they will be saved. With endurance, we get dressed. We get dressed. We suit up. We get ready for action. And we get to work. Amen?